Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm reading from Psalms 139, verse 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The picture in this psalm and a theme of scripture is that God is always with us, a comforting presence, a continual companion, a resource who is always available. As the psalm says, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's there with us. Or as Paul says in Acts, we live and move and have our being in his presence. In Isaiah it says, Isaiah 58, 11, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. As James puts it, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In Christ, I believe we can take the words from Joshua as applying to us. He says, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. Isaiah says, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The picture in the New Testament is the salvation of Christ is in part a realization of this reality of God's presence. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No man, as John Donne wrote in 1624, is an island. The individual, as I described last week, is constituted in relationship with God. With God, with the world, with other people, they all play a part in this self-relationship. If we rightly understand this psalm and these other scriptures, the continuous message of scripture... There's really no such thing as being alone. There's really no possibility of loneliness if we rightly understand. We can certainly be isolated, but no matter what our situation, even if no other people are there, God is there with us. As the psalm says, whether in the heights of heaven or in the depths of hell, God is there with us. I think this was a reality that people felt and lived for much of Christian history. But we live in an age in which 
due to individualism and other things, it gives us a kind of sense of loneliness, of isolation. And in fact, maybe with this plague of the COVID, this epidemic, people have felt especially isolated, cut off from friends and family. I read an article in the uh, Journal of Psychiatry that refers to an epidemic of loneliness. And they credit one American death every 5.5 minutes to either suicide, opioid overdose. And they're saying that actually the underlying cause is loneliness. An annual mortality rate of 162,000 Americans is attributable to loneliness. This exceeds the number of deaths from cancer or stroke. Now the strange thing is the term loneliness did not exist in the English language before 1800. Most research acknowledges the role of modernity, the epidemic, rise of loneliness. We have single household, less face-to-face -face interaction, the social media. That all may play a role, but I think there is the presumption that people have always experienced loneliness the way we do or the way people do in our society, and I think that's not the case. That's what this study indicates. Loneliness as a problem, I think we can say, is a product of modern ways of thinking about the self, about society, but especially about God. As I said before 1800, there is no loneliness per se. There is no such word. People lived in small communities. They believed in God, which meant they were never really alone, as the scriptures tell us, even when they may have been physically isolated. There was a concept of a community, a theological concept of a common good. And so there really was no need for a language of loneliness. Certainly solitude existed, and certainly that could have been damaging, but the modern existential angst of feeling alone, I believe, could not exist because the modern individual, as we know it, it didn't really emerge until the 19th century with industrialization, with modernization, but especially, I think, with a particular theological turn. Charles Taylor has written the book on secularism. And he describes, he says, one of the big differences between us and societies in the 1800s or before is that we live with a firm sense of a boundary between ourself and the other. He calls this, we are buffered selves. Whereas the traditional porous sense of self came, you know, people just felt that they interacted with other people and were part of a community. Maybe there was bad parts to this, that malevolent influences such as spirits or demons could influence them. And the buffered individual has been removed from this world of fear, but it's come at a profound sense of isolation. And so how did this happen? You know, theologically, we've lost the sense of these scriptures that I'm describing. According to John Milbank, he's a British theologian, he says, well, it's actually Duns Scotus. 
He says he created a theological vision that disenchanted the world, which has given rise to both modern experience and modern political structure. And Scotus' idea, you know, there's a university of being. The being of God and the being of the world are on a continuum. And so Milbank would explain the modern and secular, whether modern American evangelicalism or modern global Christianity, he calls it a kind of thinned out version of Christianity. He says it's all the result of Scotus. And then Milbank says, well, what we need to go do, we need to go back to that medieval period in which the church, you know, had authority. Now, I think he may be partly correct and okay he's defined part of the problem but the problem is not simply that one medieval scholar created the problem that is I think it's deeper certainly Scotus we could go back William of Ockham Rene Descartes maybe they are markers of a kind of failed understanding but I believe this failure is already there, depicted in scripture. The problem, the way of describing it in this way, it is itself a kind of modern understanding. Milbank has fallen a long line of modern scholars. I remember when I was in college, it was Leslie Newbigin. And he said, you know whose fault all this is? Modernity. He says it's that Rene Descartes. If he hadn't gone into that warm room on that cold day and said, I think, therefore I am, none of this would have happened. I think that's a, a kind of simplistic way to think. You know, oh, it's that Descartes, or it's that Scotus, or maybe some people say, oh, if it hadn't been for that Adolf Hitler. It's a simplistic view of history, but I believe it's attached to a very simplistic theology. The New Testament, in fact, describes sin as a kind of understanding that we can fall into, characterized by this alienation. Certainly, we may experience it in an aggrieved or aggravated sense in the modern period. And so I'm not saying that we should not trace out the history of ideas. That yes, we really do live in a world impacted by the thought of these individuals. And there really are streams of thought that shape our understanding. I'm not denying any of that. It's true that basic human experience is changed up in this secular age. Everybody at a particular period, in the medieval period for example, they were all believers in God. It was almost an impossibility not to believe in God. Even if you were a bank robber, you were a Christian bank robber. That is the modern secular society. There really has been a change in our understanding. I'm not denying that. And I think we do need to look at the details of these various thinkers, but the mistake is not in tracing the genealogy, but it's in imagining that any one individual or any one age is a realm apart from the basic root failure that is identified for us in Scripture. And so Milbank's intense focus on Scotus. Maybe it's wrong or right in the details, but the way in which it's mainly wrong is that he sees 
failure in this singular event and the way you correct it is oh you just go back before that I think the diagnosis is partly correct but it's ultimately wrong conceptually modernity with its turn to nominalism nominalism is just the idea in our daily experience that we really don't experience these scriptures God is with us we do not encounter the essence of God literally is the doctrine of nominalism and the focus in Luther and Calvin and early Protestant thought the turn to divine sovereignty to power something like a pure formalism you know this is Luther's doctrine of imputed righteousness it's just a kind of formal righteousness so there's this focus on a kind of juridical constitutional understanding that gets taken up in the modern state in our understanding of government authority secular authority no longer subservient or legitimated by theological understanding there is a kind of presumption of just pure political control over the human body through the body politic and what I'm saying is this seems to be an aggravated form of what Paul is describing as sin as a misorientation to the law what is called the voluntarist conception of God that is the focus on the will of God rather than God's goodness God's beauty this was secularized in the conception of the state and in the focus on the individual and this raw power is codified in law and by legal state institutions but the steps that lead to this focus on divine sovereignty I think it's just following the course that Paul traces as the universal predicament yes we may experience this differently in which the unmediated presence of God is traded for secular forces the forces of law for Paul the reality of every individual is understood in light of the experience or identity of corporate humanity he says okay there's two kinds of humanity you know there's Israel and there's Adam but that's one kind and in that understanding Eden the law of the knowledge of good and evil literally displaces God and he says the law of Sinai does the same thing and part of the point of Christianity maybe the main point is to separate this obscene orientation to the law from an authentic belief from authentic faith we're always going to be surrounded by perverse religion that's just the human condition and what the New Testament is doing is identifying this perversity for us and showing us what an authentic faith looks like sin in Paul's definition fuses itself with the law with the state with the government so that one becomes a servant of the law as Paul did when he was a Pharisee as Adam did but he says as everybody does and this incapacitates our love our ability for agape love just think what's the opposite of loneliness of alienation it's love it's the love of God it's the love of other people and the irony is that Christianity 
has extracted us from the orientation to the law of sin and death, from a kind of religious enchantment in which fear controlled people's lives. But now the law is not presumed to have any religious ground. It's just secular. A bare and open law built upon raw power. But it still reigns. It's still the same problem. And in this nominalist universe, no appeal can be made to an actually existing goodness of God. All that we have is kind of the mediating power of law, of legal institutions. As Mike Pompeo said a couple weeks ago, you can't question the Constitution of the United States. It's infallible. And if we begin to question it, we're questioning the very foundation of the United States. Maybe it's always been the case that might makes right. In the medieval period, though, even kings presumed their legitimacy came from the church and there was a check on their power. But in the secular realm in which we live, power is its own legitimating force. There is no ecclesial legitimating power. What is the power of the state? It's the power of war. And making war makes the state. And political might makes right, no matter how obscene or illegitimate the individual politician. In the same way, we could talk about capitalism and money. It used to be that it was a kind of sign of God's blessing and depended upon this theological understanding. But now just having money is legitimation in and of itself. And so as Charles Taylor has described it, the imminent frame now prevails. That is that we no longer depend upon the invisible power of God as our scripture in Hebrews talked about, but we just have the visible world. As Carl Schmidt, who was actually a Nazi, but a Nazi jurist, says all significant concepts of the modern theory of state are secularized theological concepts, not only because of their historical development in which they were transferred from theology to the theory of the state, but also because of their systematic structure. What's he saying? He's saying the state became the equivalent of the church. As Schmidt describes it, the omnipotent God became the omnipotent lawgiver. And with secularization, we're just left with law without God. And so it's no surprise that in the modern period, miracles are said to be impossible because law, natural law rules, it became an impossibility for most. And so there should not be the possibility of questioning the powers, the authorities, the constitution, because the modern constitutional state reigns in place of God. The constitution replaces commandments. The nation replaces the church, the community of faith. And at an individual level, human decision reigns supreme. Human will is the final arbiter of ethics. And so what I'm suggesting is that in this situation in which I think our neighbors are left worshiping the nation state, in which people are dying all around us for futile political causes, I think it's a case in point of a turn to legal power, to political power, 
to the power of personalities as there is a loss of authentic personhood. People are lost is a way of saying it, but I think we can say quite specifically how they're lost. There is a literal denial of death on behalf of a covenant with death, which they've entered into because of their political orientation. People are laying down their lives for the futility of an obscene authority, which they've confused with their religion and their church. But isn't this out of a lost sense of self, a desperate grab for identity, for some comfort, for some cover? And isn't this destructive nature, just look at what it does, an indication that this is simply an aggravated condition of what Paul is saying sin always does, in which he depicts himself, his eye, as arising in conjunction with the alienating law. You either have God or you have power. You have the love and beauty of God or you have pure law, pure power. In Paul's depiction of the eye, he's depicting one who is simply subject to the law. He describes himself as kind of like an object fixed as part of a formal structure under the law. And it's characterized by fear and by struggle. This antagonistic struggle between the law of the mind and the law of the body. He says this is the very thing that produces the ego, the I. This is Sigmund Freud. He could be quoting the Apostle Paul who says, the ego is the seat of anxiety. Jacques Lacan says the ego is alienation as such. In Paul's picture, the I, this self-conscious ego, that is the subject of sin. What I'm saying is individualism, modern individualism, is simply an aggravated form of what Paul describes as the sinful subject. And I'm not trying to simply lump together all forms of sin, but I'm suggesting that a true genealogy of our modern problem begins with a biblical diagnosis. And it promises more than a return, as Milbank would picture it, to a medieval or to artificial attempts to re-enchant the world. We cannot go back to the pre-modern world. We certainly feel the acuteness of alienation more intensely, but it's not a prompt to return to a lost world, but it's a recognition, a prompt to recognize what salvation in Christ entails, the holistic nature of it. We're surrounded by an aggravated notion that the law, the state, the political, or simply the private, or power, will deliver. And the message of the New Testament is, it won't. Let me conclude with a couple of verses. Romans 10.5 Concerning the righteousness that is by the law, Moses writes, The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God is near, as close as the word is close to you, as the word is near to the heart or to the mouth. 
And I think what Paul is picturing is that the good confession, it's not simply a one-off event, but it's a faith journey. It's a, a way of life in which we affirm continuously, God is with me. God is on my side. The promise of Christ, you know, this is the picture in Revelation 3.20 that we have a picture of here. Christ stands at the door and knocks. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I think this is a continual invitation. It's a continuous invitation to open the door to Christ. We continually turn to him, for here is the promise of an ever-abiding presence, which banishes all alienation and loneliness. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.